Hello and welcome back to Tough Talks. I'm facing nights this week. I have an archer on, Danielle Brown. How are you? I'm fantastic, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. I kind of always wanted to get someone on that's played archery. It's something that I have tried in the past, but uh, feel that miserably it is. It's a very, it's, it's a very hard sport. The way I start all my podcast is um, tell me who you think is kind of the greatest of all time at archery. So the goat of archery. Oh, that is so, so tough because um, do you know what I always say to people is never choose your role model who's in the same discipline as you because if you ever come up against them and compete against them, um, yeah, you're just going to be absolutely, absolutely flawed. Um, Who do I think is the greatest of all times? Oh, that's so tough because there's so many different things you can choose from. I mean, um, there's Neroli Fairhall of um, New Zealand. She was the first ever Paralympian to go to an Olympics. And um, yeah, she she beat me to the post at the Commonwealth Games, made the team and, uh, and won, um, won there. So she's pretty amazing. But um, and also, I suppose um, Zara Nemeti from Iran. So she's she's incredible. She competed at the Rio Olympics and has won gold in three Paralympics. So she's amazing. Yeah, um, that's that's fascinating. The ones that are just when they're going to win one, one's not enough. It's kind of gets a bit greedy at that stage. But <laughs> you kind of touched on the Paralympics and all there. That's kind of where you're where you're most well known for your kind of golds there. But take me right back to the start and kind of how you got into archery and kind of when you started to know that you were kind of better than the normal person at it? Yep so archery is a pretty unusual sport and to be fair I didn't realise it existed outside of medieval history or fairy stories growing up. It wasn't something I got the opportunity to try at school Um, but for me growing up I, I had a very active upbringing so I was always doing sport running walking cycling camping swimming all, all those kind of things um, and all the school sports as well but when I became disabled as a teenager I couldn't run around anymore I was really struggling and I was really missing sports um, I didn't know much about Paralympic sport at the time you know I, I think the last few years that the information that the, the actual platform has uh, mobilized it has increased quite a lot but for me growing up I, I just didn't know that you could adapt sports so figured um, you know I was down to either swimming or I'd heard about this new sport archery on the school bus and I thought playing with bows and arrows seemed way cooler so yeah, 15th birthday, my dad and I did a beginner's course. And uh, to answer your other question, I was so rubbish to start with. You know, I could not hit that target to save my life, spraying the arrows everywhere. But, you know, for me, that didn't matter. It was just so much fun. And it became my it became my out, um, the thing that really, really helped me cope with having a disability. So if I could get through school, I was well enough to go to archery practice at the end of the day. And yeah, I just practiced loads and loads and loads. And three years later, I was on the Great Britain team. So my my progression from rubbish to getting quite good was actually quite quick. Amazing that that only took took three years to kind of get there. And kind of more specifically, what 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 was your kind of disability? Yep, sure. So I've got something called complex regional pain syndrome. It's a neurological condition, so caused by my brain. And effectively, the the nervous system's a little bit mixed up, and it means that I'm in chronic pain in both my feet all the time. So, would you say when you when you kind of started straight away, was it kind of doing archery sitting down, or did you try this kind of standing up way as well? Yeah, well, I didn't know. I think at the time it. It took me such a long time to get that diagnosis. So I didn't actually get that till I was 16. So it was kind of trying to find ways like to, you know, business as usual, like how, how to get around. So I did start standing up. Um, I've got the worst balance ever in, in archery, you know, particularly in competitions, you all stand up in a big long line. And it became uh, apparent quite quickly that that probably wasn't the safest option, because if I fell over, it'd probably be a bit like dominoes. So yeah, I um, I tried around, uh, tried tried lots of different things to sit. I didn't want to be sat down um, 
fully but we ended up coming up with what's best described as a bike seat on a tripod. So I was more perched on it. I was quite high up, um, but I, it was still taking my weight and, and offering a bit more stability and balance. Oh, I, I was watching the kind of videos you back from Beijing and London, and it was quite a cool wee, cool wee kind of seat. Was that specially made for you then? Because I'd never really seen any like that. It was like a wee bar stool kind of thing. Yeah, no, it was designed actually by the um, sports engineering department at Loughborough University. So they did a fantastic job and I asked them to paint it bright pink for me. I figured if I've got to be sat on one of those, I was going to stand out one way or another. Um, so, yeah, they did an amazing job and there's a lot of engineering that went into it. And it was, yeah, when I first got it, I took it to international competitions. Everyone's taking pictures of it. And yeah, uh, after that, stalls of uh, very similar style kept appearing around the world, which is is great. Yeah, so you kind of started that trend, which is quite cool. And you kind of mentioned there about kind of international tournaments and also then when was your first like kind of major international kind of representing GB yep so the first one was 2006 <laughs> very very exciting one actually got my A-level results and found out whether or not I made it into uni that week so uh, I was more concentrating on that than what I was actually supposed to be doing shooting wise but yeah European championships which uh, was really fun and then how'd you, how'd you get on there did you find kind of that step up maybe from like regional things was quite quite high Yes, well, I, I did. I That was actually one of the, the key events I see in my career because in many ways it was a complete failure. Um, I, I kind of bombed out in the match play. So I, I broke two world records to start with in the ranking round. I was just so amazed at this first international competition and I just completely knocked the socks off my older, more experienced competitors. And then the match play. So back then we were shooting at targets 70 meters away and we had 12 arrows. So person with the highest score goes through, lowest score, that's it, game over. So there's so much pressure on those 12 arrows. And I was always so good at this bit, you know, national competitions. As soon as that pressure went on, my scores always went up. But um, yeah, out there, just in front of that team, I was so proud to be part of. I completely fell to pieces. Couldn't control my shot, spraying the arrows everywhere. And it, I, just, I just completely bombed out. But I learned so much from that event. You know, um, I learned that I needed to control my nerves to start with. Uh, as I say, I was concentrating on my, my university results. So I needed to learn how to deal with distractions better. And to be all honest, because match play was a bit I was good at, I thought it'd be a walkover. Um, so I learned that competition is not one on paper and I had to uh, treat every match and opponent the same way. Yeah, so kind of straight away from that tournament 2006, did you then kind of feel that the Beijing 2008 Paralympics was kind of definitely on the radar? Was that kind of the first time you thought and kind of compete with this field? I can definitely kind of give it a go. Yeah, I mean, it was always there, like, you know, sort of, I suppose, more in the back of my mind, because um, in, in the sort of lead up to it, but um, I, I kind of broke it down into stages, because you have to, for an Olympics or Paralympics, you don't just rock up, you've got to actually qualify um, and get your place. So I... Um, I was more focused on the world championships that was happening the following year because that was where we could that was where all the qualification places were given so if I qualified there then then I could focus on Beijing so yeah it was there in the back of my mind but not where my immediate focus was and then kind of when kind of that came around and you kind of qualified and you were at Beijing and that kind of that kind of ranking um event can you kind of explain to any listeners that maybe don't know much about archery kind of what is a ranking event and kind of how well you got on there in the Beijing ranking event yep so a ranking event is um pretty much what it says on the tin it ranks you um so whoever gets the highest score in the ranking shoots off against whoever is lowest 
in the match play. So in theory, the higher you get in the ranking, the easier it is to get to the uh, the final. Though it doesn't always work that way. That's just uh, that's just the theory. So. In Beijing, we had 72 arrows at 70 meters. So that's, um, yeah, who, whoever gets that highest score against the, the lowest score. Um, so I I won the ranking in, in Beijing. I actually, a new Paralympic record. And um, then I was against a Chinese competitor because she come right at the bottom. And you know her home country. She in my first match, she had like eight thousand supporters, and I had eighteen. So uh, yeah, it was a it was a very fun match. So how did you find then when kind of after the ranking games, then going into kind of the match play type of things? You said before kind of you thrive off the match play, but a common theme that I've seen kind of in your career is you always do well in kind of those ranking the ranking events. You always kind of target those to kind of get a good ranking because you can really kick on and the kind of um, kind of match play from there. So how did you find then that moving to kind of the match play from the ranking events? Yeah, I mean, moving in, yeah, it, it was really interesting because well, my, my first match I got through no problem. And I have to admit, I was, I was more nervous about that because um, the the lady I was shooting against, uh, the Chinese competitor who's uh, brilliant, I actually shot against her in the finals at the world championships the year before so she she was a silver medalist at the world championships and I was just like hang on a minute you've come at the bottom of the ranking I was just like I easiest route to the final don't think so but yeah she was she was just not having a good tournament poor lady um but I I, I got through that but my matches and I I made it through to the semi-finals and this is where it all kind of went wrong um because I just started to think, and I, I think a lot of people, when you you think about an Olympics, you think about Paralympics, you're like, wow, this is an incredible, exciting event. And I guess it is to watch, but when you're actually there, there's a lot of downtime. It gets quite boring because you're stuck in this the, the village in this enclosure, and there's not a lot to do outside of your competition, outside of your practice. So yeah, I got all this free time on my hands in between my matches and I started to think and it was honestly awful. I was just like, what if I can't do it? What if my best isn't good enough? What if I let myself down? What if I let everyone else down? And I just sort of went on this downward spiral, which um, I, I was just in such a low place and genuinely believed my dream of becoming Paralympic champion was impossible. And luckily, luckily checked my emails. My equipment man had sent me a message. So he told me I could shoot scores in my sleep that my competitors could only ever dream about. And even though, honestly, it makes no sense whatsoever, the fact that somebody else believed in me that much just gave me the boost I needed. So it was just like stopped all those thoughts and got, got me back on track. And the next day I just went out there and, and I sort of, delivered the goods I won both matches and yeah my, my gold medal match I didn't even have to shoot my last arrow I'd already won and how, how does that work then in terms of the games how like what's the kind of break between the ranking rounds and your kind of quarterfinals semi-finals finals yeah so an archery typically takes a week to do so yeah it's like you, you turn up I know I know right you turn up to some like um or to the games don't you you're like people are winning medals on the first day and it's just like seriously like yeah we've got we've got the the long haul because um you you, you sometimes go for days without having a competition because you've got all the other um like you've got the men's category you've got the different bow types so um, the, the space for that. So, so typically you'd, you'd shoot the ranking round and you get that all done in one day. And then the next, um, the next day they, they may put on team events or they, they may, may have the team events at the end. So it, it, it depends on how they decide to structure it. But typically there's a, a day off in between and you might do one match in a day and then go back the next day to, to finish up doing more matches. No, that, that's fascinating. That takes a week. I thought it really was just you get in and you fire on like maybe in a day or two. So that is so much thinking time and kind of for a 
elite athletes kind of, as you said, kind of the best way sometimes to do it is just, just pretend like you're kind of just back training and you're just firing, firing mm. your arrows and the calves thinking time, I, I can see why that um, became difficult. And then I seen as well that the semi-final was against a fellow Brit as well. How was that kind of going up against Mel Clark? And I'm sure he's probably met numerous times when I was kind of doing my research. I, I've seen her name crop up quite a lot of times kind of in those in those later rounds. Did did it become quite competitive between you two or was it kind of a kind of a kind of a rivalry? Yeah, um I mean it it's one of those things, isn't it, that in an individual sport, very very interesting, I suppose, because yeah, individual sport and you're then up against your teammate. So it's like your your teammate and competitor. So um so some very interesting dynamics there. But the, the, the end of the day, everybody was training for that, that gold. So, you know, I wanted it, she wanted it. And it's just a case of um, what, what I was trying to say to you before is you, you've got to try and find a way to um, divorce yourself from, from, from your opponent so like I always used to say that my biggest competitor was myself and I am not being like horribly arrogant here and saying that nobody else could beat me. Um, I, I was saying that because it, it's one of those sports where only you can affect what you do. So if you start thinking about your opponent being really, really good or really, really bad, you're, you're affecting your own headspace. So for me, it was just really about going out there and not even thinking about her, what she was doing and just going and, and, and trying to do my best and focus on what I was doing. Yeah, and that, that, that ended up being a really close match. So I guess when you, one of those ones, kind of when you won the semi-final, then you felt like there was kind of nothing in your way because of how hard that semi-final was. You feel like if I can beat, I can beat Mel, kind of, I can beat kind of anyone in this competition then. Kind of going into that final and kind of winning the gold, you said, of kind of a uh, with an arrow to spare. How was that then? Kind of knowing you, knowing you were about to win it, but you still had to kind of kind of close it out. But you knew kind of it would take something dramatically wrong to kind of, and you kind of probably didn't want to limp over the line as well. Hit a few threes and fours just to. <laughs> Do you know what? I think if I look back, that was my all-time favourite match. Like, yeah, it, it was fantastic because um, Chieko, the, the Japanese lady, oh, she, she is honestly so amazing and brilliant. And she came um, next to last in the ranking round. So, you know, she, she wasn't expecting a medal and she, she, she got in there and um yeah she she was just so thrilled to be there and she didn't care to be perfectly honest she was coming away with a medal and I just loved her energy like she was waving at the crowds in between arrows like she she just didn't she didn't care and I just loved that you know I was there like super competitive because I I didn't you know what you were saying before I didn't think just because I've beaten Mel that this is going to be an easy match that it's going to be a walkover that I, I I could do it I was just sort of back into this is important I've got to do good arrows I've got to focus I, I've got to get back on there and deliver the goods you know so close now but yeah Chie Chieka just didn't care and she was just so amazing and I just love that you know the fact that there was no pressure uh, and she was just smiling throughout the whole thing it was brilliant uh, that's that's kind of another approach come people take us that kind of relaxed approach and sometimes they come across that kind of they're not bothered but kind of deep down like that's just their way of dealing with kind of nerves is kind of getting energy off the crowd and I'm sure then kind of when we start chatting about London in a bit kind of we'll get that sense of kind of the when you kind of got that energy off a crowd and things but um I always want to ask them why, when you won the the Paralympic gold when kind of the medals around your neck what then happens in terms of I guessing you just go out in the streets of Beijing and try and find whatever bars but if you can or was it quite relaxed maybe more family time yeah no I mean it, it as I say um archery take takes so long so um we only have a few days at the end typically so I, I think 
you'll probably through your research uh, know better than when I won it. I think it was around the 13th of September. I think, is that right? Yeah, you're nodding. So yeah, yeah. I'm assuming that's right. Yes, yeah. 13th of September. So, because we'd already had some practice days before we started. So, so we'd literally got um, like two, three, three days afterwards. Um, some of that we went to see other sports. Um, the archery competition was still going. So my teammates um, managed to win a few more medals the following day. So, so we were there supporting them um not going out and about until um you, you know everyone had finished the the competition and we we didn't manage to see much uh, which i really regret you know i'd have loved to have seen the great wall of china but yeah it was it was sort of um just sort of ended up watching other sports really so was there any ones in particular that you find most most interesting to go and see Oh, um, so difficult. I mean, the atmosphere in the athletic stand was was brilliant. Um, you know, I, I just think that because that's, I suppose athletics tends to be like the biggest stadium. So you get, um, yeah, you get the, the, the most amount of people. And it was really cool sitting in the stands, you know, after and the <laughs> opening ceremony where you walk in. And it's so difficult because it's obviously quite dark when you, you that they tend to hold the, the ceremony in the evening and you, it just looks so big. You can't even see all those tiny little seats being filled up um, and then to sit in the stands and sort of look down at the, um, the, the field and watch all the athletes. You know, it was, it was just that was a really cool experience. Yeah, no, Beijing in general is one of my favourite Olympics. Cause I'm quite kind of a sport nerd. I like picking weird kind of things that normal people wouldn't say. And kind of, kind of on the Olympic side, Usain Bolt and stuff kind of put himself on the map in 2008 Beijing and kind of all the Paralympic stuff. I, I did really enjoy that. And then kind of moving towards the Commonwealth Games in 2010. When kind of did you realize that kind of and going into kind of able body competitions? When did you realize that was kind of doable? And when did you think I'm going to give this a go? And then obviously, how was that transition? Yeah, so I always thought that able-bodied was possible, um, and I think that's one of the reasons I really liked archery was that you didn't have a disability-only competitions in the UK. So if you were doing an archery competition, you were competing against able-bodied people anyway. So, so I loved that. You know, I wasn't a disabled athlete; I was an athlete, um, and that that for me sort of really helped you know in terms of how I saw myself um as a teenager with a disability so 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 I love that getting onto the able-bodied team was always part of the game plan I figured that um you know once I got to the para the para team I was like oh you know I'll, I'll just keep working my way up and doing it in in tiny steps and I figured if I could get one arrow in the middle why can't I get them all there so um so it was always part of the game plan Making the team in 2010 was not because I was in my third year of university. I was studying law, so quite an intensive course. Um, and I, yeah, I, I basically got the selection scores for the, um, the Commonwealth Games a week before the selection shoot. So we were out at a para training camp in Arizona and I just like rocked up the first day, shot a PB, rocked up the next day, beat it, got another PB. Uh, and I turned up to the hotel going, oh, you've got, um, and I got this email saying, you've got uh, the scores for the selection. Would you like to turn up on Saturday? And I was just like, I don't think so. You know, I'm going to be jet lagged. I'm going to be absolutely exhausted after coming back from, um, from Arizona. And I just thought that with all my uni, I was at like degrees, I, I, I was um, preparing for my exams and I'd already taken all this time out for the, the para training trip. I just thought, can I really afford another, another day off? But my teammates kind of persuaded me to, to go for it. And to be honest, didn't really take much uh, arm twisting because, you know, playing with bows and arrows versus sitting in a room studying, you know, no contest really. So, uh, I, I turned up to the selection shoot. I was honestly, I felt so horribly jet lagged. I think I got to sleep at two in the morning, 
I was up at six. I hadn't even booked a hotel at the National Sports Centre. I was, I was that convinced that I wasn't, you know, I was just turning up for the fun of it, really, the experience. So I drove from Leicester all the way up to to uh, to Lillishaw to the National Sports Centre, and I won it. And I just think I just absolutely shot my socks off. And I think I put absolutely no expectation on my on me to do well. It was just go there for the experience. Uh, and yeah, it came came top of the the list, which was amazing, and managed to, to hang on to that place a month later at the second selection shoot, and I've made the team, which was just really cool. So, not expected at all. Was then how did that decision then come with, or was there no decision? Was it very much that when London twenty twelve came around, was there any thought of going in kind of the able body, or was it always kind of to retain your title because they always say it's. It's harder to retain a title than win a title. Yep, it definitely is harder to retain one, that's for sure. But uh, no, there was um, there wasn't a decision for me to make. So my bow, I shoot a compound bow. That discipline is in the Paralympics. It's in World Championships, able-bodied. It's in able-bodied World Cups and and all the main suspects. But it's not in the Olympics. So I could go to a Paralympics, but not an Olympics. That's interesting, actually. No, that's that's really cool. Actually, the little, little tiny little details that kind of make up kind of the kind of qualifications, or whatever to kind of qualify for it. Um, and then kind of go into London twenty twelve home, home and home of home Olympics, home Paralympics, and kind of then as you said, you only had eighteen people in the supporting you in Beijing. How was it then when the whole kind of stadium or kind of complex was then cheering you on and then feeling that pressure of ever kind of before people turn up to the event they would have looked up seeing Danielle Brown's meant to win it will definitely come to the archery because that's kind of a guaranteed gold and all this and that and you then knowing deep down like that this isn't how sport works (laughs) yeah it was hard it was really hard um and actually I suppose it started long before that and um I don't know if you relate studying for journalism, but I have to say in the lead up to the games, I got very frustrated with journalists because I was getting two phone calls a week. And the first thing they would ask me is, how are you doing? You're the hot favorite to win. You must be under a lot of pressure. How's it going? And I was just like in my head, fine till you rang me up. Thank you very much. You know, I wasn't thinking about it and that's, just totally the wrong question and not what I need to hear in my prep um, on the way there. So I was getting messages like that at least twice a week. And um, also, you know, there's no escape to it. You can't go to the supermarket without seeing Olympic rings. You can't put on the TV without seeing all the Olympic advertising you can't walk down the street without the billboards the banners the the flags you know so it was really really tough in terms of like everywhere you went everything was sort of adding to that pressure I mean it was really nice was the support don't get me wrong um and I was so grateful like for all the people who reached out to wish me luck uh it, it was just it was just amazing but I got to the point where I ended up like switching all mobile, like social media apps. Um, I just ended up getting rid of them because you'd look at your phone to check the time and you got loads of notifications. And it's just like, no, you know, I need, I need my me time. I need to, I just need to separate myself from this. And then going to the games, you know, all those people are, I think people talk about a home crowd advantage. And I thought in many ways it was a home crowd disadvantage because you know one of the things in archery is you're trying to keep your heart rate down but as soon as people are clapping and cheering it sort of wants to go up and and yeah I was just I had to win that gold you know I'd won so much I was a regular member of the able-bodied team now and I I just had to go there and deliver. Yeah and then I not kind of annoying but kind of your probably dream was to get to a final and have it against someone not from kind of GB to then have the whole crowd behind your back. How was that kind of crowd then in the final when it was, again, Mel was there, it was two GB athletes going against each other and kind of, how was that when kind of, I don't know, was there, did they have deep down favourites or was it very much just cheering everything? 
to be honest I didn't again I didn't care who I was against in that final you know it did it doesn't matter um I, I and as soon as you start thinking that you, you've lost the match in terms of the the crowd I mean of course some people have favorites you've got family watching you've got friends watching you've got club mates teammates so of course there's going to be some favorites but you spend all that time training to block out those noises so like when I won, I, I didn't even hear the commentators announcing it because you're so focused on what you're doing. Um, but but yeah, I just I, I mean, the, the atmosphere, I think people people always get excited when somebody shoots a 10. It doesn't matter who it is. So um, really, it's about putting on a, a good match. And, and yeah, I think um, it, it was nice having that home crowd. But as I said, it just added so much more pressure. Yeah, I can say about someone hitting a 10 there. I, I was watching a bag and I seen I seen Mel hit a, hit a 10 in the shoot off straight away. And then it kind of went to you. And then I was in my head, I was like, how on earth can you? <laughs> then instead of the high pressure environment, like kind of just, this is it. We're, we're down to the last few arrows and she shoots a 10 and you have to kind of reply instantly. Again, though, I can kind of understand because you didn't really, you could tell that you weren't really that bothered if like you were kind of, that was kind of the vibe that you weren't you weren't even watching what she was doing. You're kind of just like, if I hit three nines here, I should, I should be enough. So you kind of stuck to your own game and unfair play to you for doing that. Would you say then blocking out, kind of the crowd blocking out your, it's kind of that sport that if you do just focus on yourself and you have full control over kind of your own destiny type thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Um focus yeah I, I mean and I'll be honest uh, I know I look quite calm and collected in that video but I was honestly really nervous because it mattered so much to me um I was just very good at hiding it um I I think that um you you, you spend so much time training not just training the actual technique but training to um focus really really hard and also like there's a lot of time pressure so you've literally got 20 seconds to shoot your arrows in so as soon as your opponent shoots your clock starts ticking down so and I think in some respects whilst obviously that adds more pressure and more excitement it kind of like gives you a bit more control because you can't you don't have time to think you've just gotta you've just gotta do your best and I, yeah, I, I, it's really interesting. I always found that when it came down to it, when it came down to those last couple of pressure shots, that's where I excelled. Uh, and that match, that, that London match, it came down to the last arrow. And ultimately, it was who could cope with the pressure better. Like I did not shoot my best by any stretch of the imagination, but I did enough and I, I did better with that, you know, that enormous pressure. Yeah, no, and especially home. Home Paralympics, it's not like they'll that'll come around in the next four years or mm. even eight years. Like that, this was it, and this probably won't be around for a long time. And kind of then winning, winning, finding out that you won that gold, kind of how was that emotion? And do you remember kind of turn around, looking to the stand? And was there any, did you see all your family straight away? Yeah, my family were actually um, in the back, so I could see them, which is really great. I could hear them screaming, but and yeah it's so weird because it just takes such a um a long time for it to settle in because it was it was so quick like literally as soon as you are off um your match is finished you've like you've got to get into your tracksuit you've got to get out of all your equipment and it's so it's just like throwing my quiver getting rid of my hat and getting my tracksuit on to be straight out onto the podium and then you're straight round to media then you're round to drug testing then you've got to go all the way back to the village and my family because they, they come down to London so I was supposed to be meeting them in the the team uh, team meeting place I didn't even get a drink there because uh, the GB team then rushing me off for media so it was just so manic like really exciting but you don't get a moment to yourself to sit down and go wow you know look what I've achieved so it, it really did take a few days for it to properly set you know really sort of settle in and, and actually understand that wow I've, I've done this. And the was completely different to Beijing I guess Beijing's kind of media and us kind of annoying journalists weren't as running around you whereas kind of a home 
athlete in kind of London so I'm sure like you were probably doing two three days of media before you could actually just then kind of park yeah. that and just have a bit of off time oh it was insane it really was you know it was uh I think after Beijing I did two interviews which very exciting um and after London I I did two full days of interviews you know and it was it was insane because it was like I got I think I got one lunch in two days because I you drive into different studios around London and you know what the traffic's like there so you'd be like by the time you get there you've missed your lunch or, or the time for lunch and you're on to the next place so it was absolutely nuts like really really exciting and and, and I think you're right like I mean yeah, I, I know what I was saying about journalists, but I, I think really like the media did such a good job in London 2012. Like I, I know it was a home games, but they they really did bring the Paralympics to the map um, before, you know, it it was kind of the thing that happened after the after the Olympics. And it's sort of that, you know, I, I guess sort of just just sort of the way people perceive disability is is slowly changing which is great um and heading in the right direction and and i do think in in lots of respects the the media around the paralympics has supported that so rather than feeling sorry for people with disabilities it's like oh yeah we're just putting that on for them it's it's becoming a really recognized competitive sporting event in its own right um, but yeah, I really think that was spearheaded just just by the fantastic job the media did um, around London. Yeah, I know. And this is not me kind of joking around, but my the guy I live with when the Olympics was on there over the summer in Tokyo, he was he was telling me he was more excited for the he was more excited for the Paralympics than the actual Olympics. He said when the Olympics was done, he 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 was not turning off the TV. He was just waiting for the Paralympics to come on. So it just shows maybe the kind of London twenty twelve and kind of that. That maybe was kind of the real driving force behind like para athletes and kind of pushing on that yeah because i think the the olympics is the the pinnacle of human performance and the um the the paralympics is the pinnacle of human adaptability and i just think that yeah that they're really interesting like i love watching both but you just get something completely different from each don't you yeah no, I, I enjoy both and kind of the two, the two different disciplines. And you notice, like, if you didn't tell anyone a lot of the events, you wouldn't, you kind of wouldn't know the difference in terms of things like archery and stuff. And you proved, kind of, then moving to the able bodies and, kind of hitting score your your same scores that kind of you can kind of cross over and stuff. And just a final question on London twenty twelve, like that that pink hat you wear is was there any reason behind that, or is that maybe just a the stand out so your kind of mom and dad can spot you yep so I did like to stand out um in my own subtle way or, or not so subtle wearing a bright, bright pink hat but um no I actually bought that after I won uh, my treat to myself after I won the world championships in 2000 and crikey when was it now 2007 yeah so my first world championships um and it, yeah in Korea I, I just got the opportunity to, um to go to go shopping I saw this hat and I was like well I like that color but honestly it worked perfectly it let the right amount of light in like if you if I was wearing like a white hat I thought it was too glary uh, you know when we're looking 70 meters away uh, a navy blue hat a black hat it was too dark so this one just like let the perfect amount of light in which was really really um helpful and I actually had to get special dispensation to wear it in London because it wasn't part of the team kit regulations and I'm just like I cannot wear you know that the hat that you've provided me is not suitable it doesn't fit me that right that this is like a key part of my my equipment yeah no it's it was very kind of I don't know I feel like a lot of our place like you need to have your own image and I, I definitely feel that's kind of from your image in terms of when you see that kind of pink bucket hat it's kind of thinking of thinking of you and kind of and kind of on the 2012 and stuff so um no it's definitely a it was a good show buying that and probably when you bought it at the time didn't think it'd be so kind of people look back on it as they do and kind of 
when they yeah, see you. I know, I know. And I remember actually, like, I got a phone call from my mum and she's like, Where's your hat? Like, this is after I won. And I was like, Oh, it's in my bag. Why? She goes, Oh, she goes, I've just read a newspaper article that says you've lost it. And I was like, No, I've not lost it. I was like, Well, I don't know where you found that. So I found this article. And basically, what had happened was, like I was saying, like you literally had to get out of your equipment so quickly. And then you're out to media. And I got asked where my hat was. And I was like, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> just thrown it off in the, in this tent. So then it got reported that it had been lost. And my mom's like, what, what have you done? You've, you've lost your hat. So, yeah, no, it was um, it was kind of funny, really. <laughs> now there, there, there's us showing us again, just writing. <laughs> but uh, that's funny now. I find that that's a great story, actually. And. Kind of then moving on from London 2012, did you have a kind of a plan in your head after that? Because you then know kind of you're kind of like you had a dream of kind of retaining it again, kind of that was taken away from you with the kind of rules and regulations. Yep, I was training for Rio and I well, figured very exciting, not in Rio, I didn't just get the chance of getting one medal, there's two medals up for grabs. So I was like, right, I, I want both. So I, I planned um, I planned the next four-year cycle. I was training for Rio. And yes, the International Paralympic Committee changed the rules and decided that my disability is no longer eligible for the Paralympics. So yeah, overnight, I completely lost everything. So that, that was no longer eligible to compete as a para-athlete. And how, how hard really was that in terms of like, I'm sure that was kind of, you probably read an email or got a phone call and then after you're like, is that actually, is that actually real? And then kind of take a while to sink in. No, it was devastating. So I, it, it was in person. We all got reclassified um, at the World Championships in 2013. Um, because the competition was going on, the um, classifiers didn't actually tell the athletes. They just gave the results to the, um, the national governing body. So my, my national governing body sat down with um with me and just told me that I failed um I was in Thailand at the time and yeah that was it I just it, it, it was awful heartbreaking um you know I'd given everything to the sport and I could no longer I could no longer do it as a career yeah especially as well when you'd kind of yourself gone and kind of been adaptable and kind of made your own kind of see and kind of made the sport work for you for that to kind of then be taken away from you must have been really hard and I guess then you always had that kind of avenue of the able body and you competed in it before yourself but did, did that did you still get the same buzz then from doing that or did you really feel that like the Paralympics stuff that was kind of your event and kind of your platform yeah I mean I, it was hard you know I, it was hard for many reasons going back I was not very well supported by my national governing body you know um, at all um, then you know going through something like that you've obviously got so many emotions going around I went through a complete identity crisis I'd gone from being an elite athlete to sort of not uh, a person with a disability who wasn't disabled enough you know my, my entire everything I knew just completely like I felt like I'd been dumped in the middle of the ocean um I had to swim to shore but didn't even know which direction that was in you know it was it was awful um but yeah so I think there was a lot of say resentment at the time there probably was a lot of resentment towards my national governing body because they did not they did not help um at all and you're like I've given you guys everything you know my my medals have helped fund this place and when I need the help you're you're not there to actually help me um so so yeah I was a bit um a bit annoyed about that um and I also think that um well with the able-bodied side as I said it's not an Olympic sport and therefore it's not funded and I'd literally been lost my career lost my funding I had to find a new income and it was just hard setting up a business trying to running around like an absolute loon to do that and then um trying to get all the training on top it just wasn't feasible as you said kind of being self-funded with the kind of sport that you were in kind of you needed that support and then 
without sport not to be there, obviously, like, it's it, as much as you kind of, you do, you do it for the love of the game, like, you're probably getting to an age where you can't, you're not, like, especially, like, back in your teenage years, you can, you're still living at home, whatever you can, just, just give it a crack, but when you kind of need to kind of fund your own life, it's kind of, becomes a lot harder and kind of decisions have got to be made. Did you then, did you compete with many kind of able-bodied or did you kind of quickly realise like maybe I'm going to have to maybe focus on more of my kind of education and maybe go down my kind of professional career route? Yeah, I went to the World Championships 2015, which was exciting. I went to a couple of World Cups as well, um, which, again, it was, it was good being part of that team. I enjoyed it. But when I went through that identity crisis, you know, I and, and I went through that whole turmoil to get me out of it, I had to shift my, my entire mindset and I had to find a new purpose. Like, if I'd have just stewed on it it wouldn't have worked you know mentally it, it would have destroyed me so I I'd, I'd set up this business um speaking training doing loads of work in businesses in schools um all around the country so yeah as I said I was I was driving driving like an absolute crazy person uh, from one end of the country to the other and um I loved it you know that was my new purpose and that's what I, I wanted to see how far I could take that so it was really yeah whilst I did love archery I've got a lot to thank archery for I would like to maybe go back to it one day um I've I had other interests now and other things that excited me and uh, that was where I wanted to put my energy and effort yeah, and as you said, if you kind of got to maybe maybe pre-warning about it, then you could start to kind of plan for life after archery for just then to be kind of dumped in you, then it's hard to find that new energy to put, put it into. And I know you'll, you'll never say it, but like, do you feel kind of because you were that good, that kind of worked against you in, in a certain degree because then they probably thought, I don't know what they're thinking, but in terms of like if you maybe were middle of the pack or not challenging for goals consistently I did feel that to be honest you know at the time and I don't it, it's difficult to say whether there is any truth to it because obviously you know when you go through I somebody pointed out afterwards one of my mentors um does a lot of work in psychology and I think it was like a few months after I'd gone through this process and he showed me that I'd gone through that that, that grief cycle so there, there was so many emotions getting involved. So whether there's any truth to it, I don't know. But I, that that's how I felt at the time, you know, that it didn't matter how many, how much medical, um, medical advice or um, I, I saw some of the top doctors who deal with my condition and you know they they brought all this um med medical evidence and it didn't matter what i did they pick up this tiny like i think one of their excuses was one day you might get better and it's like well one day i might but that's you're not assessing me right now and in classifications you don't you can have a permanent classification but you can also have one that's under review so why not go down that route so it, and it got to the point where yeah with the neurological side of things signals don't quite get there and they were then basing decisions on footage of me walking on youtube using my sticks and i was like but what you don't realize is i had to relearn how to walk at the age of 13 so for me walking is a very conscious process what you're seeing you know is not so so it just it every time we came up with something it was excuse excuse changing changing decisions and yeah, I, you know, that kind of, I, I don't know whether there's any truth to it or, you know, when things go wrong, people try and find reasons for, for decisions. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a hard thing to kind of accept. And I'm sure like probably got to the stage where there's no kind of, probably realize there's no kind of stage, like I won't six months online accept this, I won't 12 months online accept it, kind of, this is just going to be something that you have to like kind of live with and deal with in the long term. Well, yeah, I mean, I will be fair, I I don't agree with their decision um, at all. 
and and it's not just my disability that's got the the chop there are there are others that have gone and funnily enough all are invisible conditions you know so for me, I think that every athlete should be uh, assessed on the merits of the case, not on what disability they've got, because disabilities are a horribly complicated topic. And, you know, classifying is, is very, very challenging, very difficult. If I got the chance, I probably wouldn't go back now. I'm just loving what I'm doing too much. But I know how getting involved in para sport helped me so much as a teenager. And I just think that it really isn't fair that other young people are missing out on this opportunity if it's available or, or it should be available to them. So, yeah, I, I don't think the IPC have got it right at the minute. So whilst I'm sort of accepting of my position, if there's any opportunity to say, hang on a minute, when can we review this? Can, can we look at it? Can we create something a bit fairer? Um, I'm like totally up for that because I just think that for so many, you know, the rule affects other people, not just me. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that I'm going to definitely kind of research and look into because as you said, like you, you probably would be the first to the, the, there's going to be so many different people that have experienced this. And in terms of even, not even the decision, it's kind of the, the support after the decision, not just the kind of leave you, as you said, just swimming to shore by yourself. So. No, it's definitely a it's definitely a fascinating topic and one that kind of needs addressed in the long term. But kind of overall, just in terms of summarizing and just maybe like just finishing on a positive note, in terms of when you look back, what actually is the highlight of kind of your kind of archery career? Um, oh, there are so many. I mean, London 2012, winning winning that medal under all that pressure, having my family and friends there. It's just so special. But well, you know, there are equally there's so many other positive things, you know, getting to travel to different countries, like experiencing other cultures, meeting people, spending time with my my teammates, you know, it was just it was just um a, it was a really cool experience. And I guess you have you are you the type to like have framed your gold medals or are they in a drawer at the bottom of the, the bottom of the attic type thing? <laughs> They're in my rucksack because I take them around, you know, they go to schools, they go uh, to companies and yeah, I'm, um, yeah, I love, I love being able to work with lots of people, particularly young people to, um, to sort of inspire them, not necessarily to excel in sport, but to choose their dream, what they want to do and, and actually what can I do to get there. We've spoken about it before that whole kind of London 2012 model was inspiring the next generation. And as you said, like people like you with your kind of successes and stuff and giving back to the communities, it's always great to see. Thank you. Yeah, no, I enjoy it. It's fun. No, but a big thanks anyway for coming on today. Danielle, it was a great story. And I, I hope you enjoyed yourself going kind of trip down memory lane as well. That was brilliant. Thank you. And to anyone that's made it this far in the podcast, remember to give me a follow on Spotify at Telf Talks and I'll catch you next week with another guest. But big thanks again, Danielle. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed yourself going kind of trip down memory lane as well. That was brilliant. Thank you. And to anyone that's made it this far in the podcast, remember to give me a follow on Spotify at Telf Talks.